In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. Before we begin, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that we have to worship you and to open up your word and that you speak to us so clearly, so directly through your word. And so I pray today that my words would be from on high, that our hearts would be touched with the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Prince Jonathan owned one of two swords in the entire nation of Israel. His father, Saul, owned the other one. And this was kind of a, an interesting little bit of trivia, given the fact that Israel was drawn up in battle formation. What are they doing in battle formation with the Philistines with no weapons? The reason that they were drawn up seems a little insane since they didn't have any weapons, but they had little choice thanks to Prince Jonathan. You see, Jonathan had taken a thousand men and he had uh, attacked a Philistine garrison uh, out in Geba. And I'm not sure what they fought with because 1 Samuel 14 describes how the Philistines, in order to keep the Israelites under control, would not allow any blacksmiths to work in Israel. You could not be an Israelite and be a blacksmith because you would be able to make weapons that way and they didn't want that to happen. If a, if a Hebrew farmer wanted to have his plow or his, his pruners sharpened, he had to take them to Philistia and have a blacksmith there sharpen them. And this kept Israel under control. They had nothing to fight with. It was their, their own brand of um, weapons sanctions, I guess. So anyway, the result of this was that only King Saul and his son Jonathan had swords, even owned a sword or a spear. So right away, it appears that it would be quite the understatement to say that Jonathan was a little bit of a hothead attacking a fully armed Philistine garrison with inferior weapons at best. And, and the passage doesn't tell us whether he won the fight or not. It doesn't give us any indication of what happened there. But with the results we do know, the Philistines got mad. And King Saul knew it. So he sent a message out to all of Israel calling people to come and fight the Philistines who had sworn revenge. Meanwhile, 1 Samuel 13.5 tells us that the Philistines hitched up 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers and infantry as numerous as the sand of the sea. They marched to Michmash on one side of a deep pass, a chasm, a gully. I wish I brought a picture of it. We could have stuck it up there. It's just rocks and, and barren. Um, the, when the Israelite army scouts brought news of the incredible size of the Philistine army to King Saul, though, his army, the weaponless Israelite army, began to melt away in fear. 
Some of the deserters found hiding places because of the rocky, barren, wilderness nature of the place. There were lots of holes and there were lots of caves, and the people found places to hide in them. Others simply crossed the Jordan and ran the opposite direction. And as his army steadily deserted him, Saul waited for the prophet Samuel to come and offer the sacrifices that always were offered before Israel went to war. But Samuel wasn't coming. Seven days and Samuel hadn't shown up. And finally, Saul decided to do something that he was prohibited from doing. And he decided to play priest and offer the sacrifices himself. Well, as soon as Saul had finished, Samuel arrived and told Saul that, Saul that God was very displeased with what he had done. And as a result, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. He was to lose his kingdom. So things for Saul were, and for Israel were going from bad to worse. Samuel left and Saul counted the remaining men that were with him. About 600 were left. And so they set out, they marched to Gibeah, closer to this deep pass, separating them from the Philistines. The Philistines, meanwhile, were sending out raiding parties to attack Israelite settlements and towns. And they sent one platoon of soldiers up to the top of the cliff on their side of the pass to keep watch on the Israelite army. There was no way that an army could go down the pass and up the other side without being seen and cut down from above because they'd have to climb down the cliff and back up the other side in full view. Well, one morning... Prince Jonathan wakes up with a bright idea. He says to his armor, hey, armor bearer, hey, why don't you, just you and I, go over to that Philistine outpost there and attack them. 1 Samuel 16, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will work will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Did you catch that word? Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf? God bless that armor bearer for how, what he did not say. How he did not respond to Prince Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, right. You and I go over there with one sword between us, mind you, and attack a whole platoon of armed-to-the-teeth Philistines. Maybe God will act for us? Maybe? You're out of your mind. They'd pick us off with their armor-piercing arrows before we even made it down our side of the cliff. Thanks, but no thanks, sir. He didn't say any of this. What did Jonathan's armor-bearer say? Verse 7. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. Talk about a friend. So Jonathan says, okay, here's the plan. We're going to sneak down the ravine, and then at the bottom we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. And if they tell us to wait while they come down to us, we'll wait for them. And if they tell us to come up, to them, we will take that as a sign that God is going to fight for us. Ever ask God for a sign? Yeah, I have, and I've wondered if it's not kind of a presumptuous thing to do. 
But there seems to be a pretty consistent theme throughout Scripture that when someone takes a bold step for God, maybe even what looks like an insane and even presumptuous step of faith, God seems to come through. As long as that person's motives were right, God seems to come through almost as though the person forced him to, in a manner of speaking. I mean, it's like if your child is standing up on a wall and says, catch me, daddy, and jumps. He almost forces you to catch him because you're not going to let him fall. It appears that God highly respects and quickly responds to radical action. Not radical talk. Radical action that is based on the presumption that God is going to come through for you. And when I say radical action, I'm talking about action that doesn't involve self-interest. Jonathan definitely could not be accused of acting in self-interest that day. Could he? I mean, he was risking his life to do something that he believed God would want him to. To do. There is a bad kind of presumption, and there is a good kind of presumption. Presuming upon God for selfish reasons, God will not honor. Presuming upon God for unselfish reasons, God seems to like. You've probably heard other stories of George Mueller. The guy that would tell a, a room full of hungry orphans sitting around empty breakfast tables that it was time to thank God for the food he was about to send. And God would send it. God seems to get a kick out of answering prayers when someone is relying on him totally in a childlike faith. A friend of mine once told me a story about a prayer his little girls prayed. In some places of the world, like where I've lived, each... each uh, each house has its own little mini water tank, water tower outside. In case the water ever gets cut off, which happens fairly regularly, at least in Rwanda, and, and that, that tank is your reservoir until the water gets kicked back on. Well, in my, the case of the country where my friend was living, when the water, the city turns on the water for a period, everyone's tanks fill up and then the water is turned off again and they use that water until the next time that the water is turned on and fills their tanks up again. And so if you use too much water, tough luck, you got to go find it elsewhere. Well, apparently my friend was having trouble with his water tank and it hadn't yet been fixed when he and his family left on an extended trip. Later, when they were returning home, they knew that when they got home, they weren't going to have any water perhaps for several weeks. And his girls decided that they were going to pray that God would have the water tank fixed and full for them when they got home. And being a good, um, faithless adult, <laughs> my friend confessed, rather sheepishly, that he tried to temper their faith. He tried to explain to them that God doesn't always answer our prayers in exactly the way that we might want Him to because God knows best. And He was trying to protect them from being disappointed when they got home to an empty water tank. And the little girls would hear none of it. They would not even consider the possibility that God would not answer their prayer. Jump. Catch me, Dad. 
And my friend was the one humbled when they arrived home and found a full tank of, of water. God seems to enjoy responding to sincere faith radical enough to take the first step, presuming that God is going to be with you. And that's exactly what Jonathan and his companion did that morning. They snuck down their side of the ravine, and when they got to the bottom, they stepped out where the Philistines could see them. And the Philistines saw them, and they began to make fun of them. Hey, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Why don't you two come up here, and we will teach you a lesson? And that was their sign, wasn't it? That God would fight for them. And I can't help but think, what kind of a sign was that? Think about it. They had a 50-50 chance. It was either we come, you come up or we come down. Their lives were on the line here. Wouldn't you need a stronger sign than that? If you ask for a sign when your life is at stake, shouldn't it be something that's unmistakable? Something that you're forced to acknowledge that can't be coincidence? Go ahead and say, shame on you, pastor, for thinking so critically. That's a faithless way to think. Maybe Jonathan knew better than to ask for a 100% positive guarantee from God because God rarely, if ever, removes all possibility for doubt. We may wish he would sometimes, but in his wisdom, God doesn't work that way. One thing is sure. If you want to doubt, you can find plenty of reasons to do so. And on the other hand, if you want to believe, you have to grasp every little tiny bit of evidence that comes out your way and hang on to it for dear life. That's what faith is. By definition, that's what faith is. God knows that an unmistakable sign doesn't leave room for faith. And it is faith that God values. How much? How much does God value faith? Hebrews 11, 6 Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. He values it quite a bit, doesn't he? So what is faith, really? I mean, if it's impossible to please God without it, shouldn't we better know what it is? Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the substance of things, what? Hoped for. The evidence of things, what? Not seen. Jesus said to doubting Thomas, now that you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Faith ceases to be faith when all room for doubt is removed. Real faith steps forward in the hope that maybe God will act on our behalf. Maybe. And then it grasps any fragment of evidence without requiring proof. In his sign that day, Jonathan got not unmistakable proof of God's will. But what he got was a booster shot to benefit the faith that he was already acting upon. He wasn't giving a complete vaccination against failure. He could have found every conceivable good reason to turn around and go home if he'd wanted to. But in the most radical, dare we say irresponsible, display of faith that you can imagine, 
hoping for God's deliverance without any proof of it, Jonathan and his friend climbed up the other side of the cliff, and when they got to the top, they began to fight for their lives. And God honored their presumption by giving them extraordinary strength. And they proceeded to strike down 20 of the Philistine soldiers before the rest of them turned tail and fled. Now, I don't know what Jonathan's goal had been that day. I don't, if he was just hoping to rout that one outpost or what. But God took over from there. He used this small beginning, this catalyst faith of one person to gain a huge victory for Israel. Jonathan and his armor bearer suddenly became a very small part of what actually began to happen. God sent a panic upon the Philistines, and they all, not just a little outpost, they all began to run and fight among themselves. Their flight of panic was so great that the ground shook, says verse 15. Saul's scouts took word back to the king of what was happening. And he mustered his men and they ran to the battle scene. Imagine what they must have thought when they stumbled onto the battlefield and found the Philistines fighting each other. God gave a huge victory to Israel that day because one man decided to presume on God and do something insanely foolish in hopes that maybe, <laughs> maybe God would act on his behalf. Someone named Karen Ireland once said, waiting until everything is perfect before making a move is like waiting to start a trip until all the traffic lights are green. When it comes to doing something for God, the traffic lights are rarely going to be green until you start to drive. In fact, more often than not, they are going to be stuck on red until the very last possible moment. And yet, God makes incredible promises that if we will move forward anyway, that He is going to use those obstacles to our benefit. God gives us His promises and then stretches our faith to the breaking point by not bestowing those promises until there's no way that we can ever imagine that we had anything to do with this on our own. God doesn't work this way, though, because He has a nasty streak. He doesn't work this way because He enjoys watching us squirm. Since faith is so highly valued by God, and since he knows that the only way to build faith is to exercise faith, and because he knows on our own we don't exercise very much, then God helps us by forcing us to exercise. And then he rewards us extravagantly when we pass his little tests of our faith. So was Jonathan an anomaly of long ago, or does God still work in the same dramatic fashion in response to radical acts of faith? What does James say about God? He does not change like shifting shadows. He still works the same way that he worked for Jonathan. When, with God's glory in mind, we presume upon him to fight for us, he will. 
But our enemy is spiritual. It is physically invisible. How do we fight against that? We do it by obeying God when he tells us to do things that make absolutely no sense in this world. We do it by obeying God when he tells us to live in a way that is foolishness to our world. For instance, Jesus told us to do good to those that hate us. That's foolishness in our world. The powers of evil will will try to convince us to stand up against those who hate us, to fight for your rights instead. But if we rely on God, obeying what He tells us to do, when He tells us to do good to those who hate us, then He fights for us. You tell me, would you rather fight for your rights or have God fight for your rights? God's Word is filled with foolish, irresponsible directions. Tithe 10% of your income. Take Saturdays off every single week. If someone strikes you on one cheek, offer them the other. If someone sues you and takes something from you, give him more if he needs it. You have to rely on faith for this stuff because to common sense, it makes no sense. Will you step out in radical, shall we say irresponsible, faith that says, well, God thinks this is important, so I will do it for him no matter how foolish it seems. Maybe he will act on my behalf. Foolish as it may appear, it's a good bet. Just ask Jonathan. Just ask David. Just ask Abraham. And, 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 and. Story after story in the Bible. Ask any of them and they will tell you that if you presume upon God, he will fight for you. Again, in presuming upon God, our motives must be for His glory and not our own benefit. For instance, if I pray that God will help me pay the bills and then presume upon Him by spending irresponsibly, I have a feeling I'm going to be taking care of those bills on my own. It benefits me, not God. But another kind of presumption, tithing, is not only acceptable to God, but He tells us to presume upon this. Test me in this, he says, and see if I don't throw open the windows of heaven and bless you then more than you have room for. Faith does not have all the answers. Faith does not need all the answers. Faith can't see over the mountain. Faith cannot see the way out. Faith cannot see how God is going to come through. But faith climbs the cliff anyway. Faith obeys anyway in hopes that God will fight for you. And we see him come through time and time again. I I imagine Jesus must have had some wistfulness in his voice when he asked his disciples, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what about it? When Jesus comes to you, 
Will he find faith? Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.